Welcome to Jewish History Soundbites Podcast with Yehuda Geber. Immerse yourself in the rich tapestry of Jewish history as we explore fascinating tales and uncover hidden gems from our glorious past. Brought to you by our proud sponsor, Cross River, a leader at the intersection of financial services and technology committed to empowering the communities they serve. Cross River's steadfast support fuels our mission to preserve our heritage and foster a vibrant future for all. Contact Cross River through their website at crossriver.com. A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Guerrero. The 11 Olympic team members slain in West Germany. The Olympic Games. So geheist war the Brüder in America. So kauten Schabes at the Skizar. Out of the 24 who were killed were Americans who had come to learn in Kevin. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut in Whoever heard such beautiful words, It is never too little, it is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide. with Jewish History Soundbites, and this episode is going to be about Reb Shleim the great Paisik in Galicia of the 19th century. And as is, is customary on this podcast, it'll be not so much a biography or a biographical sketch, more of how he represented his time, his era, or era, um, and um, and how we can see through through the course of his life the the um, development of Galician Jewry and the the uh, develop the challenges of modernity in the nineteenth century in Galicia and um, and how leaders like him dealt with the situation and led and uh, and it's quite an interesting story. Ripschley McClugger is beloved until today and very popular and he's got um, I think more Sfarim than anyone else in Jewish history. Um, so that's that's definitely a very very important part of his legacy. The much has been written about him. My favorite um, source, and that's what I used mostly for this episode, is a book by by Dr. Chaim Gertner, who I somewhat know personally. It's called um, just get it out here. It's called Harav Ha'ir Hagdola, the, the Rabbi in the Big City. Harabanut Bigalitsia Umifgasha im Hamoderna, the Rabbinate in Galicia and its confrontation with modernity during the years eighteen fifteen to eighteen sixty seven. It's actually a fantastic book on its own merits. To the best of my knowledge, it's not translated in English. Um and uh it's an excellent book. Each chapter really delves into another story in Galicia and one chapter is devoted to Brody, Brody, where Rav Shlomo Kluger was, and basically the story of Rav, of Rav Shlomo Kluger himself. 
So Jews are living in Galicia. They're living under the Habsburg Empire, Austrian Empire, later the Austro-Hungarian Empire in the 19th century. This is after the partitions of Poland in the 18th century. So now Galicia, this whole section of what's today southern Poland and western Ukraine, um, is it was then in during you know, from the partitions of Poland until World War One, until after World War One, was part of the Habsburg Austrian and later Austria-Hungarian Empire. And being that the Jews of Galicia was a very dense Jewish population, Galicia was a center of Jewish life, a tremendous history there, and and um, all many famous towns and famous personalities, and and they and and they experience. Um, these are Jews of Eastern Europe. The Hasidic movement is very, very strong. In fact, it's most dominant in Galicia in the 19th century. It's the center of the Hasidic movement. and But also non-Hasidic, people like Rav Shleim Kluger, who are non-Hasidic as well. And over the course of the 19th century, because there's this interesting situation, they are Eastern European, very Hasidic and very religious and very traditional, and the small shtetls of Galicia and even the big cities of Galicia, like Brody was, which we'll speak about. But on the other hand, they're not living in Tsarist Russia. Galicia is under the Habsburgs, a modernizing empire, which eventually gives emancipation to the Jews, and they receive equal rights, and there's a secularization of the Jewish population over the course of the 19th century at a earlier pace than and than uh, than Jews in the Russian empire who did not receive emancipation who were less modern of course they eventually go through their own secularization but that's a different story so galicia is quite unique in that respect um so the galician rabbinate how they deal with these big changes is quite a story and the best place to see it is in the big cities more than the small shtetls because the big cities such as Lvov or Tarnopol or Krakow or or um, Brody, those are four large cities and there's many others, um, in, all in Galicia. And uh, they experience it much more in the 19th century, the modernity and the influence of uh, those changes that I mentioned, political, economic, social, cultural uh, that has an impact on Jewish society. And that's how I want to look at Rav Shleimah Kluger in this context. So he's born in 1785. He lives till 1869. So a nice long life. Um, he grew up in a small town near Zamush in Poland, actually. And he was orphaned at a young age, first from his father and a few years later from his mother. So he uh, very much was uh, alone and grew up as an orphan. Um, his father was a community rabbi, um, but he did not grow up as part of the Kahila elite. The community, Jewish community elite did not come from a wealthy family, and even though his father was a rabbi, so he was somewhat part of the rabbinical elite, he was not related um, to any of the famous big Galician families, which was a common theme in the Galician rabbinical and wealthy families. They were all related to each other and married into each other's families, and it was all intertwined in a very complex system. Um, besides for the, the Hasidim, who also did that, the, the Rebisha families, I'm talking about the Galician rabbinical and wealthy elite. Um, so Rav Shlomo was not part of that. And the reason I'm mentioning is is because it's a theme he'd somewhat harp on throughout his long career, that he that he's kind of like self-made. And he, he, 
his 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 greatness is because he worked hard and 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 worked very hard and had a lot of um, challenges to overcome to achieve uh, what he did and therefore um, you know he 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 was somewhat critical of many of the uh, establishment uh, elite both wealthy and rabbinic um, uh, you know that he felt were, were had gotten to their positions through privilege and less through hard work like he did. Um, he studied for a time in Zamush itself, which is a larger town in Poland, um, south of, of Lublin, um, uh, seemingly under the Dubna Magad, or Yaakov Kranz for some time, but uh, mostly on his own. He was very much self-made, like I mentioned. He was very talented, very brilliant, and he emerged as a young and very impressive Torah scholar. He moved to Ravaruska in Galicia. He got married. And he was supported for a time, uh, for several years actually, by his uh, in-laws, who well, he married into a wealthy family, so he did have that opportunity to have support for several years. But subsequently his wife's, uh, I think both parents, for sure the father who was supporting him, uh, passed away. So again, he grew up as an orphan, and then not long after he got married, and he got married at a relatively young age, um, his in-laws passed away. So he, he's again on his own, and he went into business, to support himself, and he was unsuccessful at business. And because he was unsuccessful in business, he went into the rabbinate. So I always think that him, and there's several other stories about other famous rabbinical personalities who ended up like this, that we're very lucky that they were unsuccessful in business because had they not gone into the rabbinate, we would have been deprived of the enormous um, Torah literature and Torah leadership and Torah scholarliness that they provided to the world um, and that they would we would have all missed out on had they, well, I guess we would have had part of it, but definitely not the full scope of it had they remained in business. But in any event, he served for short stints as the rabbi in the towns of Kulikov and then later in Yosefov. The former is in Galicia, the latter is in Poland. But in 1820, in order to put his family on a more secure financial footing, he sought out a better position in a larger town, in a bigger city, and he was eventually appointed the Magid and Avbezdin of Brody. Um, so he got a dual position there as the Magid, as a Darshan, as someone who, who lectured the community, who, who was the, kind of like the community speaker, um, and also the head of its rabbinical court, the Avbezdin. Now, those are two different positions, but neither of those positions are the rabbi of Brody. He never served as the rabbi of the town. The Dayan and the Magid in Brody for almost a half a century. He came in 1820. He passed away in 1869. That's 49 years. There was one very short stint of just a few weeks where he was appointed rabbi in another town, but he came right away back to Brody because he got sick, actually. He fell ill when he came to this town. It's called the Bijajni, Bijajni, I wrote it somewhere in my notes. We'll get to it. Um, and he, he took a position as rabbi there, kind of, because, kind of like because he got fed up with what was going on in Brody. So we'll get to that, hopefully. Um, but, he, uh, but, he, but he fell ill. He became very sick. Um, and he, when he recovered, he took it as a sign from heaven that he should not have left Brody. So he went back. Um, so he was there for half a century, and uh, he had this incredible impact and influence. He became the Paisik, and not only of Brody, but of the entire Galicia, and really of the entire Jewish Europe. He was looked at as across Europe, Western, Central, South, North, 
the Russian Pale of Settlement everywhere around Europe. They sent their questions to Rav Shleim Kluger. He was looked at, upon as the number one Paisik and a prolific author. Published Svarim and Svarim and left many in manuscript. There is at last count what Gertner, Chaim Gertner, was able to find was 171 Svarim and it's likely that it's unmatched in Jewish history. I don't know if there's any other author who authored 171 Svarim. Not all of them are published. He wrote so many Svarim that people lost count. And they even created a legend that he wrote the number of Svarim as the gematria of his name, Shlomo. So it would be 375. But he did not write 375, 171. That's not to minimize it. 171 is enormous, prodigious uh, output. Of, uh, of Svarim, and that is a major component of his legacy. But through many of the halachic issues that come up in his Svarim and letters and pamphlets that he wrote, um, he, uh, he, it comes out a lot of the challenges that he, and the historical realities that Galicia and Brody was facing during this time. Shlomo McClugger in the 1830s and 40s begins to see himself as a Paisik who's holding the fort of traditional halacha. He feels that the new role, and he writes this, uh, the renewal of the Galician rabbinate is to be an active force against the threats of modernity, initially within Brody, but very quickly throughout Galicia and throughout the entire Europe. Um, his influence as a Paisic in the 19th century is almost unmatched. Many Hasidim, uh, many Rebbes, many Hasidic disputes came to him to resolve their disputes, came to him for a for his wisdom and for his advice and for his psaq and halacha, despite the fact that Rav Shleim Kluger himself was not a chassid, and he was uh, even somewhat of an opponent to the movement which dominated Galicia of his day to a certain extent. Um, he had this interesting relationship with the, many of the Rebbes of the Rizhin dynasty and other uh, Rebbes and Tzadikim of his day, because they kept on coming to him for questions, and he, you know, sometimes... Um, is critical of, of them or their behavior in different instances. So, they, you know, they, they, they see him as the ultimate Paisic, and yet he, um, he has this ambivalent attitude towards them and their, uh, and their community, um, other Hasidic leaders as well. Now, um, um, so, so what happens uh, is, you know, the next one, what I want to get to is in 1844, um, there's a, a, a new issue, a new, new halachic issue comes up, that no longer is the Hever Kadisha using, um, um, are, are they carrying the, the deceased uh, by the funeral on, by, by hand in, their, in, a, in like, a, you know, what, just, just the way they did it for generations, carrying the deceased um, through the streets in their hands. But, um, but they started using a horse-drawn wagon, a hearse, essentially. And... Um, and Rav Shlomo Kluger was very opposed to it. And he wrote a whole tshuva forbidding it. And how are you going to forbid it? It's, it's, what would be the problem? So he comes up with a few reasons, excuse me, uh, mainly because it's going against tradition, which is very interesting because there's no real halachic basis for it. But because it's against tradition, so therefore that is the halachic basis to oppose it. He writes, I'm just going to quote exactly the words of the tshuva, and I'll try to translate it. Um, he writes, um, excuse me, let's get, get the position here. He says, mm-hmm. 
Veyede hamishana ki chas v'shalom benafshay diber. He said, we can't change it because you're not allowed to change, because it's new, because it's different than what has been traditionally used, which is fascinating because we generally associate the Chadash Asr Menatayr, anything new, with the Chassam Seifer, who lived in the exact same years. This is 1844. This is just five years after the Chassam Seifer had passed away. They overlapped for many years. Um, Chassam Seifer obviously was slightly older, um, but um, but uh, this is, in, and the Chassam Seifer is in a different part of the world. He's in He's in Preshburg, he's in, far from Galicia, the same empire, same uh, Habsburg empire, but uh, much closer to Vienna, a different area. And, um, and, and, and here Shlomo Kluger essentially comes up with, form, with, formulates it as a position in halacha, that is forbidden halachically to, uh, to use the horse-drawn wagon. A year later, in 1845, Reb Shlomo resigned from his position in Brody to become the rabbi of a nearby town, Bijajni, he even considered, considered other rabbinical positions in Romania, Moldova. He wrote letters there, exploring different possibilities for a time. But following, uh, because he was fed up with what was happening in Brody, he, he felt like he didn't have enough of an authority. They weren't listening to him. Um, but fo- like I said earlier, following his illness, he returned to serve as the Magid and the Avbezdin in Brody for the rest of his life until his passing in 1869. That same year, in 1845, he responded to a letter that had been written to him by Reb Tzvi Hirsch Lerin of Amsterdam. Reb Tzvi Hirsch Lerin was a famous personality of the 19th century, mainly known as the head of the Pkidim and Amarkalim uh, of Amsterdam, of the, which, which uh, basically ran the offices of the old Yishuv, the fundraising apparatus uh, of the old Yishuv in Yerushalayim. Reb Tzvi Hirsch Lerin was a fascinating figure, also a bit of a zealot and extremist, um, it's another story. But in 1844, there was a conference of reform rabbis in the German city of Braunschweig, Braunschweig, hope I'm pronouncing it correctly, um, which was a major conference of reform rabbis in which they discussed all kinds of reforms in, in halacha that they were going to do. The reform movement was relatively new, was 20, 30 years old at this point. Um, so they, they, they are... There's this conference of reformers who they're discussing what types of implementation of halachic change they're doing in the reform movement. And Rabbi Tzvi as a response to this this German reform rabbi conference, he he um, he solicited responses uh, um, from rabbis across Europe. He organized the traditional rabbinate's response to it, and he called it a, he published it actually in a pamphlet called Torah Saknois, the Torah of of, uh, of Kanoyas, of, of, of zealotry, extremism, I don't want to, however you want to translate it. And, um, and he, one of the rabbis he asked um, was Rav Shlomo Kluger. And Rav Shlomo Kluger replied uh, re- relatively late for all kinds of personal reasons. He was, this is exactly when he was moving out of Brody and then returning there, and he was sick, uh, like I said. So his response was not printed in, 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 the, in this pamphlet. So you won't find it there. But he did respond to, to, uh, to, to it. And part of Rav Shalai Kluger's letter responds directly to the changes in halacha maintained by the Reform Conference. In other words, he polemicizes with their reforms itself. But actually, the primary thrust of his letter is disqualifying these reform rabbis from calling themselves legitimate rabbinical figures altogether. 
and he therefore says they're completely incompetent and unworthy of stating any opinion on halacha whatsoever, or even misusing the title of rabbi uh, by incorrectly referring to themselves as such. So the, 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 he says that, he says not only are they wrong, but they can't even have this rabbinical conference because a rabbi is defined by someone who's well-versed in all the rabbinic literature, someone who's a world-renowned scholar and is, is capable of paskening uh, shilas and halacha, questions in halacha, based on his vast knowledge and, 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 and understanding of the Torah. And therefore, these people are not even cannot even have that authority. And this is, again, a very, very historic response because he's creating the boundaries. He's creating the lines of orthodoxy. He's saying, this is a rabbi, this is over this red line, in my opinion, obviously this is Rup Shalai McClugger's opinion, other people, I'm sure the reform rabbis themselves would have disputed the opinion, but this is what Rup Shalai McClugger's opinion was, um, and he's creating the boundaries. This is a red line, that's not a rabbi, they're not competent to be called them that, and therefore they don't have any authority on religious law, on halachic law. There's even an incredible paragraph there that he says, he describes himself it's amazing. It's almost like, like if we wouldn't know Reb Shleim Kluger, or if we wouldn't have the proper context, we would think he's showing off. But really, he was just explaining what a competent rabbi is. He says, he says how he says, look at me. I'm a rabbi. This is what this is what an accomplished rabbi is. And I'm going to read from his response, just a short paragraph, and then again I'll try to translate it. He says, Yeshli erech mea v'chamisha asar chiburim gedoylim al tanach v'al kol hashas upoiskim rishaynim v'achroynim v'shaylas uchuvis la'alafim ein mispar. Yis'arvu na kol harabanim halalu b'chol dover hakoshe b'chol miktsoyes shabatoyra hein b'kushis chamuris b'kol hashas asher loyheru bom harishaynim he says, look, I have 115 Sfarim that I wrote, big ones on Tanakh, on all of Shas, and all of Paiskim. I have thousands of halachic responsa in all areas of halacha. He says, let's see all these rabbis at the conference. Let me like debate them in halacha, in rabbinic knowledge, in Torah knowledge, and let's see who's going to come out better. Like, like, like challenging them almost to, to this, this debate. It's incredible. Like He feels like it's important to set those boundaries. Uh, a year later, in 1846, there's the, he gets involved in the what's a very famous Corfu Esro controversy, the Esrogim that were imported from the Greek island of Corfu. Many prohibited their use for a variety of reasons. But what strikes one as interesting and historically telling in Reb Shleimik Kluger's halachic ruling against these uh, Esrogim is that he says that the rabbis from Corfu and Trieste in Italy who gave a hechsher to these Esrogim are no longer reliable. And he writes there, it's not like the olden days when the rabbis from Corfu and Trieste were traditional and good rabbis that we could rely on them. He said, today, we're living in the modern era, there's changes in the rabbinate, and I'm holding the fort in Galicia, but I doubt that the rabbis in Corfu and Trieste even observe the mitzvah of Lul of an Esrigol together. So how can they be the ones giving a hechsher on these Esraigim? Amazing. Um, there's the famous controversy that the Rishlein Mikulger has with his contemporary, Rabbi Yosef Shol Natanzun of Lvov, the Shailomeshev, 
um, um, who was another great Paisik of Galicia at that time, who Shlomo was quite a bit older than him, but they did overlap for many years, about machine matzahs. And Rabbi Yezus Sholnatan said permitted the use of machine matzahs. <coughs> Excuse me. And Rabbi Shlomo Kluger forbade it. And a lot of it also had to do with modernity and things that were new and the previous rabbis of Germany and Central Europe who had permitted the use of the machine matzahs that Rabbi Kluger felt that they were no longer reliable. On the other hand, Rabbi Kluger has to contend with modern technology. I mentioned this also in the Gitten episode of a few year ago or so, I don't remember how long, last spring I think it was, um, about Rabbi Kluger. Kluger comes up with this incredible heter, this incredible permissibility um, of sending a get by mail. And this is due to the advances in mail technology in his day. And he feels that one can send a get by mail. So again, he's coming into a modern question. He's tackling a modern issue and actually permitting it. So he's coming around the other way and, and, and being uh, enabling it to happen. He has um, a whole issue of, of uh, uh, Jews and farming, Jews and buying real estate, buying property, and then relying on a Shabbosky for, for to do all the the prohibited actions on Shabbos, and he's therefore opposed to Jews working on farms because of all the 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 issues that are that that it entails. Amazing. Why is that so interesting? Why is it modernity? Because the Habsburgs allowed permitted Jews as part of emancipation, as part of giving Jews equal rights, they allowed them to purchase real estate and work on farmland. And this was the first time in almost in European Jewish history that Jews were allowed to do it. So today we think of Jews owning real estate as it's almost like getting a bris. You like have to be in real estate if you're Jewish. And Jews in farming is less common, but in Israel it's pretty common. Um, and yet, Rabbi Shlomo Kluger looks at that as a modern threat to traditional Judaism. In fact, um, the Rishoners, the children of the Heiliger Rishoner, all the big Rebbes, the big Tzadikim, Sadiger and Chortkev and Bohush and all those, they had purchased uh, this big estate, almost like uh, almost like the aristocracy. They owned this massive estate. And Rabbi Kluger actually writes them a tshuva. He says, you should be showing an example to others by not buying real estate, by not buying this estate and causing all these halachic issues of Shabbos and, 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 and all, other, all other things. Um, now, like I said, his, his psak was well beyond the borders of Galicia. It was... In the in 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 all over Europe, in the Russian Pale of Settlement, in Western Europe, Romania, well beyond the borders of Galicia, he Paskin Shilas. Now Chaim Gertner in his book did something, a, a great thing. He has this in in, in uh, he he uh, he numerically analyzed thousands of Reb Shlomo Kluger's chuvas according to the destination of where it was sent to, which is mentioned in the chuva. And the section of Shulchan Aruch. So he has this big table in the book of, of, of the percentage of chuvis from each section of Shulchan Aruch. Hashemish, but Evan Ezer, Erechaim, and the Yeridea, and which ones were sent to Galicia, which ones were sent to the Russian Pale of Settlement, which ones were sent to Romania, which ones were sent to Western Europe. Fascinating. And then, you know, it divides them up according to percentages. So a significant percentage were written to Russia, to the Pale of Settlement, especially in Evan Ezer, Gitten. Agunas, and also in Chayshin Mishpat, monetary law, especially communal stuff, rabbis, communal affairs, the authority of the Bezdin, the courts, um, Shechita, which is Yeridea, and Shaykhtim, the position of Shaykhtim, which means that not only did Russian Jewry in the Pale view Rabbi Shleim Kluger well 
far away in Galicia as the ultimate Paisik for the most complicated areas of halacha, such as Gitin and Agunas, but they also relied on him for communal affairs. So they defer communal affairs, which is quite unique to Russia and the Tsar's uh, government and the way they lived in the Pale, which is unique and different than the way they lived in Galicia, and they defer it to an authority who's in another country. It's very interesting. He even traveled there once uh, to resolve a dispute. It was a dispute between two Hasidic courts, between Ruzhin and Savran in 1843, and, and the, the dispute took place in Berdichev, um, and he was there for two weeks um, to resolve it. Uh, he had to leave actually quickly because the Russian government was going to find out he was there, so he had to run away. But um, that was like a major trip of his to Russia. Like they, they almost describe it in almost like Hasidic terms. They, they turned out to greet him in every town, and they asked for his blessing. Very interesting, actually, descriptions of his uh, journey to Berdichev from Galicia. He also is another historical, uh, historic of historic note, um, his psak in Romania. Uh, because Romania was a relatively, as far as Ashkenazim for sure, there were Sephardic communities there for centuries, but, Ashken, but Ashkenazim in Romania was quite new, um, and most of it was Galician immigration. There was also uh, immigration from the Pale of Settlement in Russia, but most of it was Galician immigration, and most of the rabbis in Romania at this time were from Galicia. And therefore, they asked their questions to Rabbi Kluger. And they're asking, we're in these new communities. What status do the new communities have? What type of custom and traditions do they have? And they're saying, we're, we see ourselves as transplanted Galician communities, and therefore we want to keep the Galician traditions. And the ones we address our questions to is the big rabbi in Galicia, right? So that leads to the, you know, towards the end of the century and the beginning of the 20th century, Jews migrate all around the world, to the United States, to Israel, to everywhere. And what status do these new communities have? Are they continuation of old communities? And, and uh, how do they resolve their traditions and customs and halachic questions? So here you have it already in the 19th century with this Galician immigration to Romania. So those are just a few examples from the life, uh, fascinating life of Shleim Kluger. Um, and uh, this is Yudhi Gerber with Jewish History Soundbites. You can subscribe to Jewish History Soundbites on your favorite podcast platform. You can reach me at yehudayudigeber.com for questions, comments, sources, tours, trips, sponsorships, and lectures. You can help out the podcast by telling your friends and family about it, spreading the word about it, and also by leaving a rating or review on any podcast platform that you, that you use. It helps more than you think, and I hope you enjoyed.